0: everybody. Welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. This is episode 56 and today we're going to talk about a lot of stuff. Uh, I've got some feedback on structuring your boards a little further from last episode. I'm going to talk about seasonality in the lumber business. We're going to discuss the different varieties of hickory. Or is it pecan? Mm. Talk a little bit more about drying boards, some wood movement stuff, some fishing tips, and finally kind of round it out with some uh, a weird topic, kind of woods we maybe didn't know about, but we probably see every day. So as always, I want to say thank you to my patrons who are continually sending in good questions for the show, who continue to support the show. Uh, greatly appreciate you all. If you are interested in being greatly appreciated... Well, there's lots of ways to do that, but if you want to do that in reference to this show, go to patreon.com slash lumber update and you can support the show. A buck, 50 bucks, doesn't matter. It's all appreciated. So let's look at a little bit at some industry news. I've talked in the past about the Toxic Substance Control Act or TSCA Title VI, and that is basically replacing the CARB and CARB-2 regulations that limit the amount of formaldehyde in our engineered products. Well, this is a US regulation. Canada is now coming online with their own EPA regulation that's gonna be kicking into effect in January of 23rd. Uh, 2023. It basically mimics the Tosca Title VI. So now all of the plywood, all the the MDF, all the engineered woods that are coming into as well as out of Canada need to apply or need to um, comply with the same Tosca Title VI requirements. This has actually been an issue as we've been shipping material across the border or receiving material uh, into the country, uh, both from Canada, uh, but also from Europe. And those regulations, those parts per millions uh, have to be met. So now North America will essentially all be on the same standard. We should get a lot more um, consistency in the products because there's a lot of material made in Canada and a lot of material made in the US and they kind of cross mix in the market on a daily basis. So look for that consistency starting January of 2023. So a little bit of feedback on the last episode when I talked about how can we stretch our boards further and Michael wrote in and he brought up a really good point that um, I talked about planning a little bit more um, in, in kind of limiting the waste when you're buying material. He brings up the point that says sometimes you don't have that option and you have to alter your design in order to match the match material you have. So he says, lots of us use this same process, he's referring to altering the design, later on in fabrication with story sticks and taking measurements off the prior piece and assembly, rather than going off the original cut list dimensions. A good example of this is sizing the parts of your drawer off the actual case that you just built, rather than cutting the drawer parts from the cut list, because you never know if there's some changes there. By moving that little bit of flex back into the design process, we can adjust the design to fit the available material, keep the critical minimum and or maximum dimension and let the design flex a bit around that. After your last episode, I looked at a recent project I completed without hard measurements. I calculated the fixed cut list required with the preliminary dimensions from my early sketches. It would have needed 20% more boards and produced several times more off-cut waste than the version I built. My original build of that project ended up as a nice classic ratio and less than 4% different in size than my original sketches, but with a lot less waste. This Michael is a fantastic point on how we can stretch our boards further. Certainly planning and buying uh, smartly, but also when you go to the lumber yard and you know you're looking for seven inch wide boards and you cannot find them, it's not the end of the world. In other words, don't scale up and go to eight inch or nine inch boards and end up with more waste. But if you can find six inch boards, go back and look at your design. What would that really do if you reduced that seven inch board to a six inch board? How much would that really affect the design? In the end, would anyone even notice? And if you're keeping their proportions the same as Michael's just showed us, less than 4% different in the total size, but with substantial, less waste. So very good point. I, I run into this a lot where people are desperately trying to find a certain size and they can't find 12 inch material, or whatever, but we have 11 and quarter and they're like, oh no, no, I got to have at least 12 inch. Well, why? What would happen? And really in general, we call this term value engineering. Value engineering really is looking for ways to, um, to save a little bit of cash. You know, if that crown molding needs to be nine and a quarter inches, well, what if it was eight inches? It would be substantially cheaper. And would anyone notice in the finished product? Here, certainly we're looking to save money by wasting less, but also it's amazing the changes. And and this happens when you screw up too. Like if you accidentally chip out a board really dramatically and you have to plane a little bit more off that edge and you end up reducing your, um, your panel, say by an eighth of an inch less than what your cut list is. Who cares, right? No one's gonna be able to tell the difference as an eighth of an inch as long as the matching panels all match, right? As long as everything comes out square, it doesn't really matter. So thank you, Michael. Excellent, excellent point on how to stretch your boards further. And I throw this out again, folks, anybody who can think of other ways that they've used to stretch that board or that board dollar a little bit further, always wanna hear it. Great tips that we can continue to share with the listeners of this show. So I do wanna get right into our email questions here. Aaron wrote in and said, I was wondering if the lumber industry has seasonal sales in similar fashion that retail does. For example, at the end of the summer, early fall, you'll see swimwear go on sale because stores need to remove that inventory and replace it with jackets and pants. Does the lumber industry see something similar? Do Cedar, epe, and Teak see a price decrease at the end of deck building season when the demand dwindles? Or does the price actually increase because supply is lessening in anticipation of the end of the season's lower demand? or is the industry as a whole too large to experience those changes in the market just determines prices regardless of the time of year. Aaron, I don't think any market is immune to seasonal sales changes and the lumber industry absolutely is not. So you mentioned, um, outdoor material, a deck building. Um, I wouldn't really lump teak into the deck building, although a lot of people use it for deck building. Teak has a lot of other uses. The marine industry, the yacht building industry basically goes all year round. So teak doesn't really see any seasonality there. Well, it's not entirely true, but I'm going to focus on on Ipe, you know, kind of the prime tropical decking species. And you'll find that a lot of the things that occur with Ipe happen very much the same with just about any other species based upon whatever their niche is, whatever it is they're looking for. So Ipe is a ridiculously hard tropical wood primarily used for decking. It comes out of Brazil. It's grown all across Brazil. Brazil is a huge country, but Brazil is also prone to rainy seasons, monsoons, which can really shut down the supply chain. So It is, since it's a deck wood, it's heavily sought after during uh, the winter months and the early spring months because people wanna build their deck, finish their deck, refinish their deck before they actually use it, right? You will see some continued boom in sales throughout the summer. That's really more of the DIY market. And a lot of times it's smaller orders, people doing repairs to a deck rather than building an entire deck. For the most part, we wanna have our deck done when the heat of summer comes around so we can enjoy our deck. Second of all, building a deck in the middle of summer is just terrible. That's not to say that people don't do it, but the lion's share of the sales are ahead of the summer months. So decking season to a lumber yard is really February to about Memorial Day. And in many instances where contractors are building the decks, there are certain communities that don't allow construction, deck building falling into that, after Memorial Day, vacation communities, beach communities, where there's a huge rental season, um, there's a huge amount of people using their houses, and they don't want the sound of circular saws and hammering and screw guns and all that stuff. So many local municipalities will actually ban that type of work after Memorial Day through the summer season. Well, that seriously puts a kibosh on the sale of deck materials. So. Huge amounts of sales in February to about the end of May. It starts to dwindle in June, July, August. After Labor Day in September, things start to increase again because those, those construction uh, halts now are released and people are going back in and doing uh, additional work. Now the deck sales are not quite as high. They go up a little bit, but what really starts to climb at that point is things like siding and shingles, where people are doing repairs and restorations after the summer season. And you know they've been hanging out of their beach house, and they go, I really don't like the look of that siding. They're, they're staring at it all day long, and that's when they decide to restore it, or really in late October the siding stuff takes off because hurricane season ends up and a lot of times there's damage to be repaired. While that's happening there's kind of as a byproduct decking material is still being sold because people are thinking well while you're doing the work on the siding let's go ahead and redo the deck or let's add on to the deck or something like that. So you'll see a slight increase in decking sales from early fall up until about middle of November and then it drops dramatically as we go into the holiday season and there's just really not a lot of decking going on at all. Now, for many, many years, the decking season specific with Ipe was entirely controlled by the monsoon and the monsoon would hit and there was just no way to get lumber out of the forest. The roads turned to mud, trucks would sink in the mud, they would fall over, they just couldn't do it. So all shipping stopped. So what the sawmill started doing is quickly getting everything sawn into boards and getting it to port before the monsoon hit and shipping it as soon as possible. So decking season as far as sales here in the U.S. hasn't quite kicked in, but The importers and the the distribution yards are flush with ePay and more coming in every single day. There's many times in December and January when we can receive 27 shipping containers in one day. And then like three days later, 19 more come in and we're just trying to find places to stick ePay because we have to buy all of our ePay for the entire decking season at the same time, we have to get it all in at the same time because once the rainy season hits in the summer, um, nothing moves. Nothing moves. So during the high demand in like February to May, there's nothing inbound. And you got to hope that everything you're going to sell, you already have on the ground, you already have in stock. So because of that limit, because of that monsoon restriction on the supply chain, um, on the supply chain, the buyers have to anticipate for the entire year and that will continue all the way through that slight uptick in sales in the fall as well. So what that sometimes means is uh, the early berm definitely gets the, word, the worm. So when, it, like right at the beginning of decking season, like maybe around early February, it's still kind of cold. And there's not that much demand on decks yet, but we know that you know middle of February to beginning of March, things are gonna to start to pick up. Meanwhile, the lumber yards are like, oh my God, take e-pay, get it out of here. We have no more room for e-pay. We've got e-pay coming out our ears. If you show up in February and say, I want to buy, you know, I know I'm going to have six decks to build this, this spring. I want to buy all of my e-pay right now. You're going to get a better deal on that because they're flush with that material. Likewise, as you continue through the decking season, as you come into that late, um, Late May, or even if you're buying in June and July, the prices on decking are sky high because there's been a, a big rush, a lot of people demanding it. But the inventory has also dropped dramatically because again, there's no new material coming in since like January. So stocks are starting to get low, prices are rising. You know the, the unusual sizes are almost completely out or out of stock. So when you can find them, they're really, really expensive in order to meet that um, that stoppage in in supply. Likewise, as you start building decks in the fall, it's kind of slim pickings because no one has received any ePay since really January or February. And stocks are really, really low and prices begin to climb even more. Even though the demand is not nearly what it was three months earlier, in the fall, you'll find some of the highest ePay prices around because of that limited inventory that's left. Likewise, best ePay prices around in February. Now, some of this has changed and it's not universal, but the large distribution yards have figured out ways to continue to buy ePay all year round. I brought up earlier that Brazil is a huge country and it's grown all across, ePay rather is grown all across the country. Well, while monsoon is happening in the south of Brazil, they're still shipping out of the north of Brazil. And when the monsoon is happening in the north of Brazil, they've resumed shipping in the south of Brazil. So if you're buying from a bunch of different suppliers, which you know any any Lacey and CITES and sustainable buyer is, should be doing that anyway, when you're cut off from one area of Brazil, you can still start bringing it in. And this has started to expand the replenishment stocks. We're still getting inundated with ePay in January. But as things start to run low in June or in July, we can get new stock coming in so that's kind of helped to even out the price of ebay so we don't get that big spike in pricing because it, face it uh, ePay is expensive already and it goes up constantly. It went up 33% actually prior to COVID. And then of course, COVID drove it up even a little bit more. And we don't expect it to really drop again because just there's so much in the way of regulation. There's so much paperwork and things that hold it up. It's become very, very expensive to bring ePay into the country. But at least the seasonality due to the supply chain has mellowed a little. It's evened out because people are now buying across a wider geographic distribution. Good for the ecosystem, but also good for that supply um, supply chain. You can take this same thing and apply it to anything. I mentioned siding briefly, you know, Western Red Cedar siding, Alaskan Yellow siding, White Oak siding, Sapele siding. During siding season, which as I said, is usually in the fall, you're going to see those prices start to go up as the demand is really, really high. But good buyers... If they can buy in order to bring fresh material in during the spike in demand, they often can undercut their competitors because they've got a lot of material, they've got it at a lower cost, and they can, you know, well, yeah, it's all competition, right? You got a you know a, a buck cheaper or fifty cents cheaper than the guy across the street, and that can also actually um, spike the sales because people think, oh, I better stock up while it's cheap. So this is the same. In any industry, whether it be the clothing industry, whether it be the bicycle industry, whether it be the automotive industry, you know, people often say that going and buying a car on um, New Year's Eve is the best time because they're trying to get rid of those late model years because no one wants to buy a, you know, 2021 on January 1st, 2022. Same thing happens everywhere. So the important part is whatever the species is you're buying, what would you associate that species with in your brain? You know, uh, it, it's white oak. Wow, it gets used for exterior siding, gets used a lot for distilleries, for barrels. What are the seasons around that particular um Uh, trade or that particular construction. And that will all vary pretty dramatically. The other thing to think about is just the seasons themselves. When are the trees being felled? For the most part, you want to fell trees in the winter when the sap isn't rising. So if stock is low in the summer, it's not like people are going back out and cut down a bunch of trees and turning them into boards. Moreover, there's that additional lead time of kiln drying and all that fun stuff before the board is actually ready to sell. And this is one of the things that really has caught the the price craziness in COVID is it's not like, you know, okay, we hired some people, people got vaccinated, they went back to work. You know, it's not like you can just start selling stuff right away. You have to fell the trees again. You have to saw them into boards. You have to air dry them for a couple of weeks. You have to stick them in a kiln for maybe six weeks. They have to be transported different places. So there can be, you know, at minimum two to three months of lead time from when you fell the tree to when it can actually be sold. So if there was nobody felling the trees and now they've started again, this is why you still see you know, large uh, COVID spike, COVID caused lumber price spikes because of that delay. Anyway, it all has to do with the seasonality. So great question, Aaron, Um, kind of more of an economics discussion than anything else. But uh, I don't think there's an industry that is so big that it can uh, ignore seasonality. Uh, And if they do, it's called really, really good marketing. (laughs) Dennis and actually Alan uh, both wrote in with some questions about hickory. Dennis says, I'd like to know more about the varieties and variances on wood sold as hickory. I've come across vastly different characteristics in hickory from hard to soft, light to dark, porous to dense, blotches, streaks, black stains, stringiness, even vastly different smells when cutting it. Are there multiple species being, uh, being lumped in hickory lumber? I get that inconsistencies, inconsistency is what gives this species its rustic character. Mostly, I'd like to know how to better characterize and describe these boards. And then Alan said, Why are pecan and hickory often combined when I see them listed at a lumberyard? Often I see it as pecan slash hickory. Would pecan make a suitable substitute for hickory and tool handles? Out here in West Texas, we have way more pecan trees than hickory. It is the state tree of Texas, for goodness sake. Um... And I just a little aside, I want to say thanks to Alan. Anytime I get an email from Alan, I, I have a warm spot in my heart for Alan because some of you may know I run something called the Hand Tool School, and I launched an apprenticeship program probably three years ago. And Alan, to this day, was the first apprentice to join the school. He's still an active apprentice. So in fact, in the community, his moniker is the first apprentice. So Alan, you always, always want to say thanks for taking the leap on me and joining the Hand Tool School as an apprentice. Anyway, let's talk Pecan and Hickory the first thing to recognize is pecans, the nuts, come from hickory trees. So the reason that you will see pecans hickory is it's kind of the same tree, but not. So here again, you have to think about, there's kind of eight different kinds of hickory. Um, four of them you might call true hickory and four of them would be called pecan hickory. So the true hickory species would be shell bark, pig nut, mockernut and shagbark whereas the pecan hickory ones are um bitternut nutmeg hickory pecan and water hickory so there you will sometimes find some even other names that are kind of local alternate names for each of these but really those are the eight ones you're talking about um Yes, they are lumped together as hickory and they are sold as hickory. The yards that call them pecan and hickory, and Alan, I think the reason you're seeing that is because you are in Texas and it is the state tree. really, there's no, when, it, when it's a board, it's being sold as a board, there's very little differentiation between pecan and hickory. The only time you would really tell the difference is when you're actually harvesting the nut itself. And obviously, you know, uh, uh, shag bark doesn't produce a pecan nut, uh, whereas uh, bitter nut would. So if, if that's what you're after, the fruit, if you will, the nut is what you're after, then it does make a difference. Once the tree is cut down and turned into lumber, it's all hickory and it all gets sold as hickory. But they're not quite the same. Um, the true hickories, again, the the, the shellbarks and the shag, uh, uh, the, the blah even I'm getting them mixed up. The shellbarks, the pig nuts, the macronaut, the shag bark, those true hickories, they are a lot more dense than pecan hickory. And, you know, I should look it up. I actually don't know the numbers offhand. It's probably like a tenth uh, difference, but that's still pretty significant. Um, you can't really tell the difference just by kind of touching the planks. When you cut it though, you will feel that little density. Um the pecans tend to be less uniform in color. Um there's a lot more oil, there's a lot more extractive in there, um which cr- creates a little bit more variance in color. So it's very streaky as compared to the true hickories. Um, Uh, really the true hickories, um, it's a lot more common. It's got that more uniform color. As I said, it's a little bit more denser. It's more often used as hardwood flooring because pecan hickory is less dense. Um, I can say I'm using air quotes when I say softer because pretty much all hickory is pretty hard, especially as a domestic species, but the pecan stuff is definitely going to be a little bit softer. When you're buying hardwood flooring, most hardwood floors are using the true hickory stuff because of that higher density, because of the less variance in color, um, you know, because when you're laying out a whole floor, you want it to be somewhat uniform. If you're looking for that more, quote, rustic look, then a lot of the pecan hickories are being used because there is more variance in color. There is more streaking. You also find that they they just have twistier grain because they're they're grown for the nut, remember? So they're grown in in do you still call it an orchard? It's an orchard when you're growing fruit trees. I guess technically the nut is still the fruit, right? It's an orchard, a pecan orchard? I guess that sounds right. I don't honestly know. But think of orchards being grown for the fruit. They, you want them to branch out quickly because when they branch, they will flower. They will form the nuts or in an apple orchard, the apples or the peaches, et cetera. If it's a big, long, straight trunk, that would be great for lumber there's a lot of nutrients being lost, being sucked up by that trunk, not going out to the extremities producing the fruit. And an orchard, you've got shorter trees that branch very quickly and often in order to produce more fruit or more nuts. So just think about that. The pecan hickory in and it of itself is going to be crazier grain, a lot more crotch figure, a lot of knots from all the branching that's going on. Um, when pecan hickory is cut into boards, you generally will find the sizes are narrow and shorter because again, that pecan tree is grown for the fruit. Whereas true hickory, well, that's grown for lumber. So the straighter and longer the bowl we can get, you're going to find somewhat straighter, uh, straighter grain material. Hickory is still pretty branchy in its very nature. Unless you are specifically growing a hickory plantation and really actively pruning in order to get that straight grain tree. Um, And you got to really actively do it because it does want to branch quickly. So I really could sum this up in like 30 seconds instead of this long rambling diatribe, but uh, pecan hickory is a little bit softer, less dense, much more variation in color, and certainly smaller sizes in the specification. True hickory is gonna be a little bit better on the sizes. It's gonna be more uniform in color. It's gonna be denser a little bit harder, more like traditional lumber boards. And for the most part, that's what you're gonna find in your flooring boards. Great question, guys. This is one of those, um, again, I like to call them conglomerate species here. You've got eight different species that all called hickory. Mahogany is another one. African mahogany specifically, lots of different species that all come together and you can buy, you know, boards from the same rack at the same lumber yard and have dramatic color and grain and working characteristics from two boards that were side by side in the same rack at the same retailer. Jeff, has a question uh, about drying boards. He says, I'm located in Ontario, Canada. When air and drying various lumber species, maple, ash, and pine from my sawmill, I sometimes get mold being produced on some boards but not others. Is this is based on climate, airflow. Once I decide to use the lumber, once milled to proper dimensions, is it safe to use for any application? Uh, okay for arms or legs of a table but not a cutting board? Thanks for sharing your knowledge. Uh, good question, Jeff. Mold in general is due to lack of airflow when you are drying the boards. The reason you may see it on some rather than others is, well, just the three you listed, maple, ash, and pine, are dramatically different in their structural makeup. Pine, obviously very resinous, it's a softwood, so it doesn't have the pore structure, but the, the high amounts of resin in that pine is going to trap a lot of moisture and it can release it differently. Ash is a large poured ring porous wood that's gonna dry with a lot less gooey center than than pine. Maple, holy crap. I mean, it is so sweet, sugary sweet, especially hard maple. That's where maple syrup comes from. Lots of of sugars in there. Um, A lot damper, a lot more moist, if you will, than something like ash. So you may see no mold on the ash and a little bit on the maple and a whole lot on the pine or none on the maple and still some on the pine. It's unlikely you're gonna see it just on the ash and not on the pine unless there was a dramatic difference in moisture content and just really, really bad ventilation on the ash versus the pine. So airflow is, is absolutely key. I really don't think you can have too much airflow, when you're air drying your boards. Um, If they're out in mother nature and they're covered um, and not getting standing water on them, for the most part, I think you'll, you'll probably be okay just letting the wind blow through them but you do wanna make sure that they are stickered with enough air to blow through them. If you're bringing them inside, stick a fan on there and turn it on high. It's not, there's every possibility that too much airflow could prematurely dry it and get some checking on the ends, but I don't think there's really anything you can do to avoid the checking on the ends. Even if you seal up the ends, be prepared to lose a foot off of each end. That's just the way boards are gonna dry. Um, If you stick it in a kiln, you always account for having to trim one to two feet off the ends for that um, kiln defect that's gonna happen on the ends. As far as, is it okay if you do have some mold? Um, what I will do if I see some mold on some of my boards is a little bit of a um, either a borax solution or you know a dilute chlorine solution, just scrubbed on with a stiff bristle brush just to remove um, the active mold. Then I will run it through the planer, and that's just to keep you know, any mold spores from kind of blowing up into the air in my shop, going into my dust collector. I don't care how good your dust collector is, those mold spores are tiny, tiny, tiny. It's just a good idea to, to, to use that um, chlorine or borax solution just to kill that off and get it off the board. Once you're planing it though, I mean, the mold isn't going into um, more than surface deep. So once you've actually planed it off and you've got fresh clean wood, you really don't need to worry about how you're using it downstream um, you know, whether it's, uh, for a cutting board or for table legs or whatever. Um, yeah, I don't think that should be a concern, especially if you've taken the time to remove it with uh, borax or chlorine type solution. Thanks for the question, Jeff. Michael has a question, uh, about wood movement while actually building. He says, um, After listening to your series on wood movement, I'm I'm making that wood moves get over it mental shift. So thank you for that. I have a follow-up question, however. How do you deal with wood movement while building the project? I would assume that just as you build furniture with wood movement in mind, you should plan out your build process with wood movement in mind as well. Keeping some excess thickness and width on the board seems prudent and is something I already do but I'm thinking that perhaps one should only mill up as much lumber as you can join together that day. Any other tips? So Michael, I agree with you on that last point. Um, I try to only mill kind of what I'm planning on joining that particular day. Um, Some of that is just sanity purposes, especially because I work entirely by hand. I don't, really want to spend all day milling boards. I want to just mill one or two boards and then move on to joinery, join those two together, then go back to milling and then into joinery and then back to milling. You kind of rotate through that process. I also find that anytime you're milling all your boards at once, you're asking for problems. You know, anytime you've seen that scope creep on your cut list and if you've already milled all your boards, you can't go back. So it's Anytime I've got, say, moving parts like drawers within a case, I won't even touch the stock I have set aside for the drawers until after the case is glued up, pulled out of clamps and probably even finished prepped. Um, I don't even, you know, if I can mill those boards and then they sit while I'm building that case and that, you know, could take a day, could take three weeks, it could take three months depending on how much time I get in the shop. I really don't want to have that drawer stock sitting there milled. Now there's other people who say, well, you want to mill it and give it time for acclimation. The boards are still acclimating to your shop while you're in there. If you are milling them considerately, and by that I mean don't remove all the material off one side of the board and then take a 64th of an inch pass through the planer on the other side. If you're removing wood evenly from both sides of the board, you're gonna get an even moisture exchange and you should end up with a flatter board. So there's the first tip, when you're milling, don't take three passes on one side and one pass on the other side. Try to take one pass, flip the board, take another pass. You're really evening it out. You'll end up with boards that are a lot more stable for longer, but you know, they still have to do a little bit of acclimation once you've removed the material. But if it's even and you've stickered it to allow airflow, back to um, Jeff's question on mold, if you're allowing airflow once you've milled it, it should stay relatively flat. But here's the other thing. The thinner you mill a board, the wider the board is, the more tendency it's going to have to cup. The longer the board is, the more tendency it's going to have to bow. So if the parts you're making are pretty small in size, you can mill them further ahead and not have to worry about it. You're not going to see a lot of cup over a two inch wide rail and style, but a 12 inch or 15 inch case side, especially because it's probably flat on, is going to cup no matter how much time. So for me, if I mill a case side that's 15 inches wide, I wanna to get to joinery and join it and rely upon the joinery to hold that flat. So say I'm making a bookcase and maybe I'm fancy and I'm using sliding dovetails for the shelf to, to case side. What I wanna do is mill one case side well, or mill 2K sides, depending on how much I plan to get done that day, and go all the way to joinery and dry fit the case. You don't necessarily have to glue it up because there may be other things you need to do that you need access to the boards. But if you do the joinery and you assemble the joinery, that sliding dovetail is going to hold those case sides flat. And because they're wider, because maybe they're thinner, you've moved more material, they're going to want to cup. But The sliding dovetail restrains that cupping, but it also allows, it doesn't restrict wood movement, it restrains the cupping. And you'll end up with nice flat boards that won't be so difficult to put together later. Likewise, really tight joinery, like tongue and groove joinery. It's always a good idea to mill that board and fit the tongue and groove all in one session. Especially the longer the TNG joint, the harder it can be to line things up and get it to fit together. And if you try to hammer together a TNG joint, you're liable to split off the tongue or more than likely split off one of the sidewalls on the groove side. So you do have to think about the size of my parts, the thickness of my parts, the thicker the board, the less, you know, the less it will cup on you. Again, wider the more it will cup, etc. How much potential is there for that particular part you're milling cup. I'm not a big fan of the whole remove a little bit of wood, leave it big, and then come back and remove some two weeks later. I'd rather do all my milling at once. And if I'm worried about the cupping, worrying about the movement, go through and complete joinery rather than multiple steps of milling. I want to mill a board and be done. I don't want to do it a whole bunch of times. So there's going to be people who differ from me on that, and some of that may just be my hand tool approach versus a machine shop approach, but. The Unfortunately, the answer to this is so much it depends on the size of the parts, the species you're using, the type of climate you're, you're living in and what kind of dramatic climate swings you may see, how climate controlled your shop is, et cetera, et cetera. The key is, and what I said in the whole wood movement idea is yes, wood moves, get over it, plan accordingly and always think about during the build process. And for me, I try to restrict my milling to as close to joinery as possible. Okay, Matt. Matt's going fishing. Well, actually, Matt's helping other people go fishing. He says, I've got a supply question for you. I am in need of balsa. I make fishing lures and I have a request to make bulk crankbait bodies uh, for a um, fishing supply store. Um, anyway, I can't find a source here in or around Rhode Island for balsa boards. Um, I get that half inch or thinner hobby sheets, you know, like something like Michael's craft store or something are small carving blocks, but that's it. Any help would be greatly appreciated. So here's the thing, um, Matt balsa. It's not, there's not a huge demand, but the demand for balsa is in those little craft sheets or carving blocks that you're seeing at hobby lobby or Michael's and in model airplanes. When, when, again, those parts are very thin, um, there's not really a market for boards, traditional lumber in balsa. So the majority of the balsa is being milled at the sawmills into these particular parts. And some of that is, is a LASIAC thing where a percentage of work is done in country. Um, others is just, it's more efficient. The sawyer can get a better yield out of the log if they know the parts they're making. And you know, if you have a big log and you're cutting down into smaller pieces, more of that material can go out. Um, so, because that's the primary demand, there's not a lot of people coming around looking for balsa boards. The mills themselves aren't actually cutting it. It's not that the the tree is too small. It's just they're ripping it into smaller pieces, cross cutting into shorter boards, milling it into thinner stock because that's what the demarc- the market demands. You probably, if you needed to get, and frankly, you're talking about crankbait, so it's not like you need, you know, really big parts. But what you might do is go to an importer um, and say, look, this is what I need. More than likely, they're gonna say, yes, we can produce that for you, but you're gonna need to buy like 1,000 board feet. <laughs> you could make a couple a couple million crankbaits with 1,000 board feet. But that's what's gonna happen because what the sawmill has to do is essentially stop production, change up their settings, mill your order, and then switch production back over. So they kinda of have to make it worth their while one or two pieces you know, would produce a lot of crankbaits, but one or two pieces is not worth the mill's time to shut down their primary production, what most of their customers are asking for. But here's the thing, it doesn't have to be balsa. I mean, with the exception of epay or Lignin Vitae, Wood floats. Most of them have a specific gravity less than water, so they float. So if you look at crank and poppers and things like that, you'll find that balsa certainly is what they're made of, but basswood is very common. Poplar is common. You will even find um, a butternut, a, a buckeye, a pine is used to bit. cedar is used to bit. Any low-density wood is going to give you that same action. Because the body of a crankbait is so small, there's really not a massive amount of weight in it. Even if you use a species that's denser than balsa, which, frankly, is a lot of species, because of the size of that crankbait, you're still going to be okay. I would recommend you check out basswood because basswood is going to be available certainly in those smaller carving blocks, but basswood has other uses outside of that. Butternut has a lot of other uses, and it's available much easier to find it in boards. So... I would go Basswood first, check out Butternut after that, and if necessary, go to Poplar, because, oh my God, you will have no problem finding Poplar in large board sizes. Finally, Jay had an interesting um, idea, and uh, I may kind of do more research on this and turn this into another show, but I do think that um, the idea of woods that we don't see could be kind of interesting. So he said... um, you know, I'd, I'd be curious to find any woods that are in large volume of use, but we don't really know about it because we don't see their use in an end product. For example, ingrain balsa is in huge amounts um, laminated between sheets of aluminum, steel, fiberglass, or carbon fiber. People rarely use balsa. Interesting <laughs> coincidence here. Uh, it's one of my favorite hardwoods, otherwise, unless um, to do car, train, boat, airplane projects. So Thank you, Jay. That just underscores what I just said about balsa. So where do you find your equivalent, uh, your equivalent lumber yards that cover balsa, where it's sourced, et cetera? Here again, they don't exist because there's no market demand for it. As a side note, I wonder why we don't hear more about um, polonia as it's also a light, strong hardwood that will grow pretty much anywhere in the continental US and would be great for planting purposes as well. Why don't they use it instead of pine for pulp since it can grow faster at 20 plus feet per year? I know the Japanese use it for carving because of its nice grain, but it seems to be a non-existent wood otherwise. So good example of woods that are out there that we maybe don't know about, or we don't actually see. And actually back to Matt's point on crankbait, um, poloni or Kiri as the Japanese call it, would be another fantastic species for uh, crankbait. Well, maybe not because it is so porous, it would be a little bit harder to get that kind of smooth acrylic look. Whereas basswood, basically almost has no grain and the pores are super, super tiny. Um, but here's a good example of species of woods that are in huge volume that we may not really know about. Balsa, huge volume, but it's not showing up on the lumber yards because it's being used for model uh, construction, frankly. Um, another one is falcata, um, also used in plywood, uh, specifically lumber core plywood. But you know where falcata is primarily used? You see them every day, toothpicks. The primary use of falcata lumber, and the whole reason falcata plantations exist, is to make toothpicks. Toothpicks are everywhere, and most people don't realize what the species is. Sometimes you'll find they're made out of birch, and they will specifically say, you know, fine, birch toothpicks. But the lion's share of your toothpicks are made out of falcata lumber. Um, Polonia, is actually an invasive species. Um, It is uh, here in the US um, and it grows definitely like a weed. The Japanese have been using it for millennia now for Tansu. Um, My first exposure to Polonia was in building a Tansu chest actually as a commemorative urn. Um, It's a fantastic wood to work. It's super strong, super lightweight. Um, It was perfect for Tansu because the merchants would carry their Tansu on their back. So they wanted the case to not be heavy at all. Why can't we use it for pulp? Well, you have to think about what what we're looking for in pulp. Um, Polonia grows really, really fast, but as a hardwood, it is a ring porous hardwood with very large pores, not a lot of extractives. It's a very dry hardwood. So as you ground it up for pulp, it would crumble into dust, whereas softwoods, because they're so heavy in resin, they turn into that pulp. Moreover, silviculturally, Polonia still has to be grown like hardwood. It still needs to be pruned and needs to be planted in neat little rows or it's not going to grow well. Softwoods don't have to be planted in rows. Softwoods are planted using broadcast seeding. So think about fertilizing your lawn with that little push card and a little broadcaster. You spin the little handle and it spins seeds or fertilizer all over your yard that's how softwood plantations are grown they grow out and they just dump seed all over the field because softwoods grow best clumped tightly together as softwoods get older and they grow up taller they weed themselves out and the weaker plants die off as the other ones continue to grow up but you'll look at a softwood forest and it's incredibly dense because that's how softwoods prefer to grow there's also Great ecological reasons for that because an earlier, um, shorter, like two, three, four-year-old softwoods are great habitats for um, small birds, for ground squirrels, chipmunks, things like that. So it's actually really, really great for the ecosystem. Even as those trees grow up super, super tall, they're still clumped together very, very tightly. It's also why softwoods are clear-cut. The best way to harvest softwoods is by clear cutting them. There's no way to really go in and just peck out one or two, unless you're talking about really old trees or specific types of softwoods like Douglas fir, um, Western red cedar. Even then, Western red cedar is clear cut. Um, It's really the best way to do it because the best way to regrow that forestry, whatever that hectare is, is broadcast seed it, have it grow in clumps, and have it weed the weak guys out all on its own. But because of the high resin nature of softwood, it makes much, much better pulp. Yes, it grows really fast. No, it probably doesn't grow as fast as polonia, but polonia would not make good pulpwood. So that's the other thing you have to think about. It's not just the growth rate. There is an article on the wood database that talks about the 10 best woods you've never heard of. And I will link to it because it is a particularly interesting read. Um, uh, Polonia actually shows up in there as number nine. Greenheart is another one. Um, A lot of people may have never heard of it, but it's in wide use in piers and pilings. It's fantastic for ground contact, but also direct water contact. So go to just about any you know, Oceanside Pier, and you look at those big round pilings, it is Greenheart for the most part. Uh, Chaktayvikta is on here, Burmese Blackwood's on here, Desert Ironwood, uh, Pistachio, great, great wood. But here again, you don't see a whole lot of it because just like the pecan, it's grown for the nuts and people don't actually want to cut it down. They can make more money selling the nuts than they can cutting down and, and making Um, lumber out of it. Black locust is another one. We talked about that in a previous episode. Um, And we may see more black locust plantations um, once people get over the um, highly invasive taproot type issues. But you will find um, a lot of instances where um, there are woods that maybe you've never heard of, but they're in huge demand. Apatong is a great example of this, uh, also known as carooing. It is pretty much on every truck bed. You know, go rent a U-Haul, uh, go rent a Penske truck, go um, get uh, um, one of those uh, wooden floor uh, dump trucks or not dump trucks, uh, pickup trucks like you would rent at Home Depot or something the floor is made out of wood and it's that wood is Apatong, um, primarily sold because it's super straight grain. It can be available really, really long quantities. So the floors of like semi trailers are made out of Apatong. A lot of pallets are made out of Apatong. Um, a lot of pallets are also made out of things like kembera. um, used to be a really, really popular kind of mahogany alternative deck wood. Now it's, because of its lower density it's light yet strong it's shows up a lot in pallet wood pallet wood actually is a great example of tertiary species that are used all across the globe and we see them every day in in a pallet um maple you know a lot of people obviously know of maple but the volume of maple that's used that we never that it's actually used to make something else uh steel mills um crane mats things like that um all the roller mats, heavy machinery mats are sitting on hard maple. And that hard maple is specifically put in place that it will be destroyed over time. The steel mills, we used to sell a, a lot of a hard maple to Bethlehem Steel in the Baltimore area while while it was still open. But you find this in the steel mills in Pennsylvania as well, still buying large amounts of hard maple for the rollers. Um, and they get destroyed over the course of one season and then they replace them with something else. Um, Oh, shoot, I'm blanking. There's, there's a lot of examples of wood like this. Um, oak is a great example. I mean, we may, barrels have become really, really popular as like uh, um, people turning them into furniture and things, but barrels are essential for making whiskey. They're essential for making wine as well. And those barrels are reused time and time again because, well, they've become, you know, coopers are not exactly everywhere in the world. So getting those barrels, um, keeping them around is really a big deal. But, you know, we consume the wine, we consume the whiskey. And we don't really think about the wood that goes in to making it. And the instance of whiskey, it's not whiskey if it wasn't in a barrel. Um, what do you call it if it's just corn? <laughs> Corn corn water (laughs) until it's been aged in a barrel like that. So there's a lot of examples, and I'd love to hear anyone else who can think of something. Um certainly balsa, falcata, uh, we talked about uh white oak, even red oak, uh hard maple. Uh I know I'm forgetting a bunch. So um let me know. Let me know if you can think of any examples of the woods that uh are in heavy amount of use, heavy export but we don't actually use them for the lumber all that much. We use them to make other products. And since you're in this discussion, and Jay, I wanna say thanks again for bringing it up. Um. I don't know if we can turn this into a bigger discussion or not. Maybe if we did a little bit of research instead of preparing for this particular show, like I prepare for Wood Talk, uh, we could have come up with some more. But lots of things to think about in this episode. Some great questions, guys. We covered a whole bunch. So thanks, as always. If you do have questions for the show, please go to LumberUpdate.com. There's a contact form you can submit there. You can... Um, and I show up in one form for me. You also can email me at lumberupdate at gmail.com, or you can find me at lumberupdate on Instagram and submit your questions there as well, which reminds me, I forgot to check Instagram in preparing for this show, so I may have missed some questions there. Anyway, love your questions. Love the variety we've had this week. Keep them coming, folks. Go buy some lumber.